there's a popular question that comes up often in job interviews or maybe in leadership seminars. It goes like this. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Has anybody ever asked you that? What kind of bold, ambitious desire is buried down inside of you that you would pursue if you knew you'd succeed? See, the idea behind a question like that, it's not only to help us discover our true passion, it's also meant to help remove the fear of failure. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Well, it's a neat hypothetical, but that's all it is, right? Because we know better. We know that you can fail. In reality, failure happens all the time. Sometimes our ambitions are misguided. Sometimes people we depend on let us down. Sometimes uh, economies fall apart. There are all sorts of things, some within our control, some outside of our control, that have the potential for failure. That potential is always present, and it's the potential for failure that often stops us dead in our tracks, that keeps us from our ambitions. Well, y'all, as we go through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, it's an ambitious letter. There are a lot of pointed commands. Uh, Christian ambition. How are we meant to live as those who follow Christ? And probably the most ambitious command that Paul gives us it's one we actually looked at a few weeks ago. I want to return to it because it's going to help us uh, talk through our scripture today. It's chapter 1, verse 27. This command, Paul says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now stop there and, and let's ask this. What is the potential for failure with a command like that? I, I hope we're all pretty quick on the draw here to say, 100%. When it comes to only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, none of us, even on our best day, have lived entirely worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Potential for failure, 100%. In fact, it's not even potential. It's a certainty. And so, if I'm honest about my own life, there are times in my life where I've looked at a verse like that, at the immeasurably high bar of obedience to Christ, and I've thought to myself, well, why even bother? I mean, if I know I'm prone to failure, if I know I'm going to fall short anyway, well, why keep trying? Well, here's wonderful news. It's good news for me, and it's good news for you too. Is that the Christian life, of course, is not based on, established on, our obedience but someone else's obedience for us. We saw this last week. Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's his obedience, his righteousness, that saves us. It's Jesus' death on our behalf that gives us life. And so in spite of our failure, in spite of our sin, we receive Jesus by faith, and God declares us righteous. Isn't that amazing? You say, Kyle, that is amazing. And I believe that. But still, I feel so stagnant. Still, I fall so far short. I, I, 
I can't ever measure up. What am I supposed to do about that? Well, I want us to look today at a very, very poignant scripture in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Uh, the Apostle Paul is going to give us another ambitious command, but he anchors it in a promise. It's a command with a promise that hopefully will reshape our understanding of obedience to Christ, of Christian ambition, if that's the right phrase. This feeling that we all have that we know we don't measure up, so why even bother? I, I think and hope that uh, this scripture today will be a great encouragement to us. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we, we look at these verses, and it's helpful for us to remember the church in Philippi, by and large, was doing pretty well. They were a pretty healthy church. They had some problems with unity, which comes up as we walk through this letter. Um, but Paul affirms many good things about these Christians, this church, including the fact that these people really do desire Jesus. They're not running rampant in sin, and Paul's trying to rein them back in. He's not correcting their every move here because they're out of control. No, these people are a lot like most of us. They, they want to obey Christ. They want to be faithful to him. And so, to those who trust Jesus and want to live a life that is pleasing to him, Paul gives a command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that is, at first glance, that's a strange command, isn't it? Didn't we just say that it's not our obedience that saves us? It's trusting in Christ? Isn't that what makes us Christian? Uh, it is. And I want you to notice, very interesting here, what Paul does not say. In Philippians 2.12, Paul does not say, work for your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. In other words, exercise this new identity and reality. Live it out in, in real and practical ways. You're not adding something in that isn't already there. You're working it out because it is there. It is present. Uh, in Hebrews 12, we're, we're commanded like this. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Exercise your faith. This is, this is really an echo of what Paul said earlier, the verse we looked at at the beginning from chapter 1. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live it out. But also Paul is commanding us to live with a certain disposition. He doesn't say work out your salvation, period. He says work it out with fear and trembling. Now wait a minute. I thought Christians weren't supposed to fear, right? I mean, wh what are we trembling about here? And see, immediately this, this old anxious thought arises in my heart. Well, wh what if my work for God doesn't measure up? I mean, what if I fail? 
is God going to cast me out? Is that what I'm supposed to be fearful of? That if my work isn't sufficient, God is going to change his mind about me? Well, again, right here, Paul is not talking about fear of failure. He's not talking about fear of God's judgment. He's talking about reverence for Christ. And so often that's that word, that biblical word, fear, is so much better understood as awe and reverence, absolute devotion to God. Um, what Remember what Paul said right before all of this? We looked at it last week at the end of uh, the last paragraph, verse 11. He speaks of the exaltation of Jesus Christ, that for all eternity, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's who our Savior is. And so as those who joyfully bow and confess and worship this Jesus, Paul says we're meant to live day by day with great awe and seriousness, fear and trembling. We see the same idea given to us in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says, if you are a Christian, then you should conduct yourself in fear. Once again, serious awe and reverence. Why? Why that mentality? Why that disposition? Peter says, knowing that you have been redeemed by the precious and perfect blood of Christ. That is the basis for our reverence. The Christian life is not a casual exercise. The Christian life is all-consuming, eternally magnificent. Y'all, Jesus is our brother, our friend, our Savior. He is intimately ours. But he's also king of the universe. He's both and. Uh, And so we recognize it's an awesome, precious privilege to know him and live for him. So don't treat your salvation casually, flippantly. Exercise it with fear and trembling, with awe and wonder and seriousness. That we have the privilege of following Jesus day by day. That's the mentality. That's verse 12. But verse 13 is the anchor for this command. It's the promise that makes the command possible. And so it's got to be there and we've got to see it. Verse 13, for it is God who has at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see the logic of the Apostle Paul as he is uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words. He says, you work out your salvation For God works in you. You are working out what God is working in. Isn't that awesome? And this is the language of partnership. God is not merely doing something to you or even just for you. He's working in you. God is supplying the power. God is fanning the desire. God is shaping our affections, and ambitions. God is enabling you and me to do what he commands us to do. Jesus makes the same point very famously back in John 15. He is the vine. We are the branches. The life of the branch is found in the vine because that is the 
the, the, the life source, the root, the vibrancy comes from the vine and extends to the branches. That means all our good fruit comes because we are connected to, abiding in Christ. We'll look at that again in a minute. That's the, the whole idea is that God is at work in you to produce what he's calling out of you. And we see the content of God's good work in us. Paul says it's to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working in your life what pleases him and reflects his righteousness. Now, let's, let's dig here a little on this. Because it, this is more than just saying, well, God's doing good things in your life. Okay. Um, but listen, I mean, th- think, think deeply with me about our own hearts for a second. One of the truly crippling fears that we all have is that if people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. I don't know a single person who hasn't dealt with that fear. If you really knew everything I've ever done and thought and spoken, you wouldn't let me be your pastor. You wouldn't even be my friend. And if I knew everything about you all the way down to the bottom, you wouldn't dare look me in the eyes. If someone really knew me, they wouldn't love me. That's, that's the, the, the greatest fear of the human heart in relationship. But now think about this. God, who knows you, God knows you better than you know yourself. That means God knows every ugly thought. He's heard every nasty word. Everything that that we've worked so hard, perhaps, in our life to hide from the rest of the world, God knows. He knows you all the way down to the very bottom, and yet he loves you. With a divine, unconditional love, he loves you. He lavishes his love upon you without limit, and he works in you. Not with his eyes shut and his nose pinched, as if he's got to go down into the dumpster to do his good work in you, and he can't wait to get back out. That's not how God works in you. He does it, Paul says, for his good pleasure. God takes joy in doing his work and will in your life. See, the fundamental stance of religion says, do the work God requires, and if you do well enough, God will accept you. Maybe he'll even be pleased with you. Maybe. But Christianity says, God is already pleased with you to the utmost because of what his son has done for you. By faith in Jesus, the verdict is already in. God has esteemed you righteous. And now he's pleased, pleased to create in you a new heart that lives for his goodness and his glory. It gives God great delight to enter in and work in your life. Y'all, the whole Christian life, even the commands, are shot through with grace. It's all grace. Even when God tells us to get to work, it's on the basis of the grace he's given us in Jesus Christ. Now, we spend a lot of time on a very short scripture, I know. Uh, But humor me for just a little more here. Uh, Because this is a doctrine that gets confused. 
um, first there there's there's a, a group of people who think my righteousness, my good works are what save me. Now we preach against that every single week. I hope we hear it loud and clear. But there's another group of people who think I'm a Christian and my good works are what preserve me. I've got to maintain my salvation by being good. And there's yet a third group of people who say I'm a Christian and because God has given me his grace, it doesn't really matter what I do. Obedience is optional. If I give great effort to know and love and walk with Jesus, or if I don't, it's all grace anyway, so I don't have anything to worry about. All three of those ideas are terribly misguided and incredibly destructive. And so I want us to, I'm just going to put up a little chart here. I hope it's not terribly confusing. I hope it's clarifying. I'm just going to walk us through this chart for a moment. Notice at the top it says, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 1.6. We studied that a few weeks ago. God began the good work. God will finish his good work. Okay. Well, think about what that means and how our good works play a role in all of this. Look at that first column. Our salvation is exclusively the work of God and the gift of God, which we cannot earn or deserve. Right? I hope we're very clear on that. I say it all the time. That's the gospel. I do not have a righteousness of my own derived from the law, Paul says, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. We do not work for our salvation. It is entirely of grace it is a gift we receive. Now, look over to the right on the third column here, before we go to the middle. Look at that third column. God will finish what he began, presenting us holy and blameless before him on the last day. Right? We see that up at the top. God began the good work in you. He saved you by his grace, and he will bring it to completion. That's a promise. So look at Colossians 1. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet Jesus has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you, future tense, before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's what awaits us because of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, he will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So you don't have to maintain your salvation by your good works and your own doing. It is the fulfillment of God's promises. He started it, he'll finish it. And therefore we're secure. But now look at this middle column. Having been saved, we now work out our salvation according to God's empowering grace. This is the content the content of Philippians 2, 12, and 13, what we've been looking at. This is what Jesus said in John 15, what we mentioned a moment ago, the one who abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. He will work out his salvation. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We work, we bear fruit, but it's his empowering grace that produces it, right? It's a partnership. We participate, of course. 
trusting that God's going to produce it. There are a lot of places, I, you put right there in the middle of the screen, you see it. There are a lot of places where we see this either spoken directly or illustrated. But look down at the bottom middle there, Ephesians 2.10. This is, bottom left, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. This is the very next verse. By grace you've been saved, not as a result of works. But now look, for we are God's workmanship, created or saved in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Good works don't save us, but we are saved for the sake of good works. That's part of what it means to be saved, is that now God is doing good works in us and through us. He prepared them beforehand that we would walk them out, that we would work them out. And so we are not saved by our good works. We don't maintain our salvation through our good works. But at the very same time, we don't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, it's all grace anyway. What difference does it make? No, having received the grace of God, we now work out our salvation in awe and reverence by the empowering grace of God. That's the role that works play in the Christian life. Um, and of course, there's more than that. There's more than that. But for the sake of today's conversation, I hope that we're clear on how this works together. Okay. Well, now Paul is going to give one specific application to this command. He gives it in verse 14. And it's bigger than just my own individual holiness. It has to do with the church and it has to do, honestly, with the whole world around us. Look at verse 14. He says in, in application to the working out of our salvation, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast or holding forth the word of life. Uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Is that a relevant command for us <laughs> in our day and time? Paul is aware of some discord and conflict within the Philippian church. He's going to mention names in, in chapter 4. There's some conflict going on. We're not totally clear what the nature of it was, but it was there. And it's a problem, of course. But it was bigger than just the individuals involved. It was bigger than the church the holiness of the church is our witness to the world. That's what Paul is, is saying in these verses. And he's actually making a connection to Old Testament Israel right here. It's not readily apparent, but all the commentators agree that he's got Israel in mind. He's trying to hearken us back to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It was Israel, if we remember, who was constantly grumbling and disputing, arguing, complaining in the wilderness. Even though God had just rescued them from slavery, even though Moses was leading them by God's hand, they complained constantly. They grumbled constantly. So much so that in Deuteronomy, it's actually the people of Israel who are called a crooked and perverse generation. The same language Paul uses, that was actually used of God's people in the Old Testament. They were meant to be the people of God shining God's light into the world, but instead Israel rebelled. They failed at what God had called them to be. And so when Paul says, 
part of working out your salvation is living in such a way that you shed light into the darkness. Living in a way that you are a purifying influence in the midst of corruption. This is exactly what Jesus commanded in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Salt purifies. Light illumines. That's what you're meant to be. We, the church, we're meant to put on display the goodness of God in a world gone bad. What Israel refused to be for their lack of faith, the church can truly be. Because remember, God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so let's just return briefly to the command here before we get to the implications. The specific command, Paul says, no grumbling, no disputing. Um, Why those things? Well, again, specifically, these were Philippian problems. He's addressing the church in Philippi. He's not just throwing out generic commands, but specific concerns. No grumbling, no disputing, because that was a problem there. But think about why this is evergreen, why this is relevant to us. When we grumble, almost always it's because we're not getting our way. And that comes from a sense of entitlement, that I feel like I deserve a certain kind of treatment. And that comes from pride, right? Well, then disputes. Disputes come right on the heels of grumbling. That's when grumbling spills over onto other people. There's conflict because I'm not getting my way. I'm either envious or jealous or resentful of someone else because they're getting what I think I deserve. Things aren't going the way I want them to, and so we start to boil over. Grumbling turns into disputing. It turns into dissension and faction. Now, these may, on the surface, feel like little sins to us, I mean, come on, these aren't the big ones. These aren't things we ought to really worry about. What, what difference does a little grumbling and disputing make? But Paul's implication, remember, it's not just that these are small, manageable sins that might hurt me personally. These things can poison our witness to the world. This is, see, this is part of what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We serve the living God as his ambassadors to the world. That ought to make us tremble. That ought to give us a sense of awe. There's nothing small or trifling about who we've been called to be and what God's given us to do. And so with great seriousness, Paul says, you nip these sins in the bud. They may feel small to you, but they're not. Because ultimately what you've been called to be is not just a personally fulfilled individual Christian but a church that gives witness to the gospel, to the watching world. And so Paul has been saying this all along. He said it about himself. In all things, Christ will be glorified in me. That was his ambition. In all things, the gospel will be shared and magnified and advanced. That was his ambition. And so not even one grumble ought to get in the way of that. There ought to be no sin that I look at and dismiss as being small and insignificant Because we have been called to bear witness to the Savior of the world. We should want nothing at all to dilute that message. We should want nothing at all to to take the purity, the light, the goodness of that grace and make it appear sour, make it appear hypocritical.
we should want to live in a way worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that is not for us, y'all, that is not, Paul does not treat that as a burden. Paul does not treat that as something that we have to bear up under, and it's going to be terrible, but just get through it for the sake of the kingdom. No, he sees it as joy. That's the, look at the last piece of this paragraph. The outcome of a shared pursuit of Jesus. Look in verse 16 where he says, So that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Uh, it's a little difficult to grasp all that Paul is saying in that little portion of scripture. Generally, here's what I think he's saying. On the last day, at the return of Christ, I will glory because of you, Philippians. All my prayers, all my hard work, all my suffering for your sake will be more than worth it as I see you glorifying Jesus with me forever. There will not be a wasted moment that I look back on and regret. I will not have run in vain. And even though I'm suffering right now in a Roman prison, and even though you're suffering right now in your own circumstances, I rejoice because of all that we share together in Christ. Even the suffering, I rejoice. And I urge you to rejoice right along with me. See, Paul understood something about our faith that he so desperately wants to impart to us as the church. How can there be such pervasive joy in the face of suffering? How can there be such great joy when we look in the mirror and recognize how far short we fall of what God calls us to be? How can there be joy in the midst of all that darkness? Because, Paul says, we cannot fail. What God is doing, what God started, what God has promised to finish, there's no, there's no potential for failure in all of this because it's not up to us. It's not up to our circumstances or the surrounding uh, culture. There, there's nothing at all that is a variable that can get in the way of what God has established as fundamental. Remember what Paul has said up to this point in Philippians. He's suffering in a Roman prison. Big deal, he says, because the gospel is still advancing. The gospel hasn't failed just because I'm in prison. The Philippians are also suffering their own persecution. Paul says, but it's God's gift to you to suffer for Jesus' sake. There's no failure there. Well, what if this persecution ends in death? Paul says, no worries, because Christ will be magnified in me, whether in life or in death. To live as Christ, to die as gain. There is no failure there. Well, what about our present struggle with sin? What about all the ways we fall short and fail? Paul says, God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The good work he began in you, he will perfect. He will bring to completion in the day of the Lord. He is doing what pleases him. Your failure does not deter God's eternally good work in you. Y'all, if Jesus Christ died and rose again, 
then a Christian may live with perpetual hope and endurance and joy, no matter what. Because the only way we can fail is if Christ himself fails. We can only fail if Jesus fails, if Jesus is found to be a fraud or a liar, only then. But if he has died and and been raised again, then even our own failures will not stop the goodwill and good pleasure of God, the finality of God's promises, which are already as good as done, even though they have yet to take place for us. And so, y'all, even even as we reckon with the darkness and the suffering of our own world, even as we reckon with our own sin and failure that haunts us, perhaps every time we try, we, we realize just how far we have to go. As we reckon with all those realities, listen, we can still rejoice. Paul still rejoiced because God began a good work in you. God is at work right now in you for his good pleasure, and God will certainly complete that good work on the last day when he glorifies us together with Christ. We struggle. We fall short. We suffer. There are all sorts of things right now that are not as they ought to be and they're not as they one day will be. Let's acknowledge that truth. But at no point will we fall through the grasp of God's mighty fingers. If he holds us in his hand, then what he's called us to be, we cannot fail. And so let's get out and exercise our faith. I mean, really, let's let's joyfully work out our salvation with reverence for a Savior who rescued us and who secured us forever. Let's make that our prayer. Father, what a gift it is to look at these verses and Lord, to recognize that our ambitions are far too small. If we only look to ourselves and how we feel like we're measuring up, then we're, we're going to miss the much greater truth that you have established in our lives. That we get to work out our salvation. We're not working for it. And Lord, that we're not on our own seeking to climb the ladder up to you to become acceptable. Lord, you have already saved us, and you are now, right now, you are at work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. And you have already secured the end. The final chapter has been written, and you present us pure and blameless before Jesus Christ. Um, Regardless of how we esteem ourselves, of what we see in the mirror, regardless of what the accuser, the devil, might say about us. You have made us your own. You began a good work. You are doing that good work this very moment. And you will see that good work through to glory. Father, will you take, will put this so deeply down into our hearts that we would confidently, joyfully walk with you, reverently walk with you. That we would not throw up our hands and say, what difference does it make? I'll just fail anyway. 
that we would not accept um, a, a casual exercise of the Christian faith, but that we will look at what is true and joyfully um, exercise, joyfully get up and go, follow Jesus Christ wherever he leads us. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left this up to chance or up to us, but that you have um, sealed our victory already. So help us, Father, to live as those victorious, as those who are saved and secured in Jesus Christ, and make us, Lord, truly lights in the world, ambassadors of Christ, who live for him um, with exceeding joy and gladness. We ask it in his name. Amen.